This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thank you for being here with us. Uh, so, once again, I'm speaking with Marina Warner, a uh, cultural critic uh, and a well known author whose book. Um, that will be, in a sense, drawing on um, Stranger Magic, uh, treats some of the themes that come up in this film. There's um, a, a whole discussion of Lottie Reiniger and uh, her history and the development of this film, but also because the film is about um, or relies on stories from the Arabian Nights, uh, we see that there are all of these embedded tales that are connected to it. So thanks again, Marina, for being with us. <laughs> no, no, it's a pleasure to be here. So I, I think uh, one of the ways to start thinking about this is to see how the film was connected to the book and some of the other issues that you started to become interested in in, in looking at the film. Um, well, I was mostly interested um, in the afterlife of the Arabian Nights, the way that the, the themes had percolated and suffused so many different media, mm-hmm. and particularly cinema. There's a huge f- filmography, um, mm-hmm. and it begins quite early. I mean, not, this is not even the first, as it were, interpretation of the Arabian Nights, but it's certainly the most magnificent Probably, I mean, across the board, actually. It's an extraordinary um, achievement. And it's, it has all the problems as well as all the charm, as, as I'm sure you all noticed, that in terms of Orientalism, the, w- the way the Orient is used to depict themes of sexuality and, and pleasure and decadence and power and um, play- the people as playthings, hierarchies, all these things come through very strongly. And she herself was not identified particularly with, with that. I mean, she, we can go into her life later, but um, there's also this extremely attractive aspect which is so consummate in the artistry. And I, as a feminist, also very pleased that the first full-length animated feature should be by a woman and be such an amazing piece of work. Mm-hmm. It's also a, a terrific collaboration. I mean, the music comes through. I've never heard it in a cinema before um, on such a big screen with such good sound. I've only heard it on DV, playing a DVD on t- my t- television. And this is astonishing. It's such mm-hmm. a good score. Yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. really remarkable seeing it here in the theatre mm-hmm. and also the reaction of the audience in seeing it and the way in which we identify with these different segments. Mm -hmm. And that's another really interesting aspect of it in terms of the stories that it draws on. Uh, There are a few different stories that it draws on from the Arabian Nights. Yes, in fact, I noticed some connections um, that that are not apparent. Obviously, she's chosen the ebony horse or the magic horse Mm -hmm. um, as the framed tale. She's she's set Scheherazade aside. So we don't have the actual enclosing story of how Sherazad saves her life by telling stories and that she's saving her life because the sultan has decided to kill all women. Mm-hmm. But you do see underlying the plot how helpless the, the women are portrayed as, as playthings and objects of exchange 
So in a sense, the she, Lottie Reiniger, mm -hmm. is embodying the Scheherazade role, telling stories about the plights of women, and then, as it were, inviting our sympathy and redress. We, we see it with slightly different eyes now, because coming after um, movements of, to empower women, we don't appreciate Peri Banu's passivity. In quite the, but if you think about it politically, she's, she's asking us to see the plight of women in that respect, and Dinazard too. Dinazard is actually the name of Scheherazade's sister in the frame tale of the Arabian Nights. Mm -hmm. So she has kept that idea within it. That, that um, Dinazard is as threatened as Scheherazade in the original book. Yeah, I mean, in terms of Lottie Ronniger as a figure, and also um, in terms of her location and the telling of the story, I think you've commented on how we can see a point of view that develops in the story, that Reiniger could be understood as a narrator in relationship to the action and the way the story is being told. Well, she certainly shaped the stories. I mean, the, the one that isn't named, but is quite apparent, is the tale of the second dervish, one of, one of the great stories in the Arabian Nights. And that contains the duel between the genies, um, in which the, uh, they end up blasting each other by fire. But she's changed it, well, she's used it to make this marvellous witch's duel, as it's called in folklore, um, between the two, so that you see those metamorphoses of the animals. Um, that comes straight out of the book. But um, she's changed the book because it's not a kind of ugly witch. And we can talk about that um, sort of racial caricature in a moment. But um, So it's not an ugly witch, it's a beautiful uh, daughter of a, of a, of a king who um, is the good figure. So it's very interesting that she's made the good figure mm -hmm. look actually so, as it were, bestial, um, mm. and unfortunate in, with unfortunate racial overtones. And that's, um, but that's an interesting choice because she's actually the figure of good magic. So, it's, so she's done something very different from the book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really mm. interesting theme, the issue of how good and evil are counterposed in the telling of the story, but also it leads me to think about the scissor work and the idea of what it is that we're watching, which is a form of silhouette animation, which relies on this technique of really cutting paper. It's absolutely, I mean, there are two really fascinating aspects of this filigree work. Um, she used a very, very small pair of straight-bladed nail scissors, um, and it's pretty much all her own work. Not, not the backdrops, the backdrops which are, which are different in style. Mm -hmm. But um, one thing is that it's, this is basically women's work. Um, mm -hmm. This kind of filigree cutting is paper frills for cutlets and paper frills for cakes <laughs> and, for, and birthday cards and, and cutouts that you put against the window to decorate a house. It's a domestic skill. Um, and it was absolutely widespread through Eastern Europe. Coming from the East, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's also Japanese, Chinese, and so forth. It's quite widespread in the world, but tends to be identified with skills like embroidery, mm -hmm. often f female coded. But the other aspect of it is very interesting in terms of cog cognitive studies, which is, I know, something some of you have been studying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is that you will have noticed how deeply you see what's happening 
in spite of the fact that these are two-dimensional black cutouts. The, the brain likes to supplement what it's seeing. The, the, the gestures are very eloquent. Mm-hmm. We feel we're seeing something acted. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, but it's, I mean, we, the, the whole, and it's the, they actually, the cognitive people, uh, Terence Cave had a seminar on this, and on the actual theory of underspecification. The brain likes to engage with underspecified scenes because it likes to supplement. And silhouettes work unbelievably well with our... I mean, I found it quite exciting, even though I've seen it before. I mean, it really involved me. Um, and it isn't just an effect of the music. It's an effect that we have, we have to work to see what's happening because it's actually not being given to us in full. And I think one of the great problems with contemporary realism is that it thinks that if they specify more and more... I mean, the, bu- the brilliant film Shape of Water, the monster is too specified. I don't know if you've seen it. Now, it's a wonderful film, and I really liked... But I thought that one thing that was wrong was that there's much too much detail in the monster. We need to see him according to how we desire Mm-hmm. rather than have him so obviously given to us in every gill and scale and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this theme of um, absence that we fill with our mm-hmm. imagination in terms of what we see um, also points to the issue of ornamentation, yes. uh, which is an interesting kind of question because in terms of the characters themselves, it's the ornamentation of the scissor work that allows us to identify mm-hmm. them within a story, one mm-hmm. of the stories. And yet, at the same time, um, there's absence that goes along with this quality of or- ornamentation yes. that, in a sense, leads us to identify uh, characters and themes. Well, the ornamentation is part of the love at the time um, of the, dis- the discovery of the East, um, the, the, the countries and cultures are very mixed up. You saw that. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, there's a lot of, you know, chinoiserie and there's a lot of... I mean, it's, it's not at all consistent. But um, it was the time when people were very much beginning to... Well, it, they'd already started a long time before, but in fact there was a very famous Oriental exhibition in Berlin mm-hmm. during that period, the Weimar period. And it was part of in an attempt to... To discover, not to, to I mean, the, the, the intention was good. It, wish, mm-hmm. wish it, it wished to know the world, and it unequivocally admired it, admired mm-hmm. what it found. Mm-hmm. So it's the beginning of the sort of cult of Persian carpets and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other, um, sorry, now I've lost my train of thought. Mm-hmm. I, I, was, well, I was going to say, oh, yes, mm-hmm. oh, yes, you asked about uh, people um, and ornamentation. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Well, one um, dimension of ornamentation also related to this theme of Orientalism yes. has to do with um, to whom does the story belong, to mm. whom do, yeah. do, does the Arabian Nights belong, um, and also in the way Reniger is working with this, how can we understand this relationship to this thematic of Orientalism, given that uh, Antoine Galland, who was one of was the first French translator of the story, um, in a sense uh, adapted it, uh, took liberties with it, um, and this long tale of the Arabian Nights lends itself to this questioning of its status as um, 
uh, an Orientalist uh, tale or yes, Oriental I mean, tales. People certainly felt that the book was available to them and they could roam in it freely because it didn't have a specific author, it doesn't have a settled edition, though scholars argue, argue about that. I mean, many people think that the first 13 and a half stories, which is the original, the earliest manuscript we have, 15th century probably, they don't even know the date of the manuscript, so it's only got the first 13 and a half stories. So that, some scholars insist, is the Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. But the, the capacious um, volumes of mm-hmm. the other stories... Um, not 13 and a half, but more like um, over the thousand and one nights, more like 265 in total. Difficult to count because there are many interpolated within them. Um, that is also an extremely fluid set of stories. And you mentioned the orphan tales. The orphan tales are so called because they don't have original authors in Arabic. They only are known in the French version that Galland wrote. There's no prior source, apparently, in Arabic so far. Um, and that, you know, has meant that they've been deleted from some editions that you might come across. The last uh, scholarly English translation left out Aladdin because Aladdin is one of these orphan tales that has no Arabic manuscript before the French one, so before the French published version. So it's considered to be a European bastard, as it were, mm-hmm. a European orphan. Mm-hmm. And, um, but my view is, I mean, I think there are sort of two analogies. Um, for this kind of material. I mean, this is not the only example. I would say the Norse sagas, uh, the Celtic myths, um, are, are similar. And that I think there are two analogies. One, one is botanical, and that is that this is a rose, but it can be a yellow rose or a blue rose. No, well, perhaps it can't be a blue rose. It might be a blue rose. It could be dreamed as a blue rose. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it's a genus. You know, this is the Arabian Nights is a genus, and it has many, many species and it can be cross-pollinated and grafted and so forth. And so that, that's one metaphor. But the other metaphor that is probably closer is, is music, which is that you, know, you, you can have one piece of music within itself, like the Goldberg Variations, in which a tune recurs in many, many multiple forms within one piece of work. Mm-hmm. But also a tune exists in multiple forms of music. So you can have you know, a, a tune on a penny whistle, or you can have the same tune set in a symphony mm-hmm. um, orchestra, and you know, it can be picked up in different ways. And that, I think, is more closer to the character mm-hmm. of a story like Prince Ahmed and Fairy Peribanu. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a kind of a species or a tune. Yeah, I mean, an, another aspect of this is um, the way in which stories are either merged together or, in a sense, uh, told within each other, uh, mm, yes. within the film. Uh, how do you think Reiniger is um, developing this mode of storytelling? Is it more like a form of writing in some, in some ways? Is it a, a sort of narrative technique that's being adapted as an animated way of presenting a kind of visual spectrum of stories and effects. Well, it's been very coherently bound together by creating Mm -hmm. this diptych so that you have Aladdin story Mm -hmm. 
and Prince Ahmed's story, Dinazad's, Dinazad's story, mm-hmm. and Peri Banu's story. So that's, you know, he, it's a very crafted amalgam of those dominant two tales mm-hmm. in a way that absolutely doesn't exist in the book. I mean, in the book, the sultan is not the same sultan. You know, they're just different stories, completely different. And Peri Banu and Aladdin never meet. So she's, she's created a, a, you know, quite a, quite a tight architecture. It's actually quite impressive, I think, mm-hmm. because the, mm-hmm. it's a very sprawling book. And she's read a lot of the st- other stories. You can see all sorts of little pieces. There's one thing that I think she's completely introduced, which I hadn't sort of noticed before, from European um, myths, and that is the magic armor. Mm-hmm. I don't remember magic, as far as I can remember, I don't mm-hmm. remember magic armor in the Arabian Nights. But the witch, if you remember, gives Prince Ahmed magic, bow and arrow and, um, and weapons. And that, I think, is sort of taken from much more King Arthur and Excalibur mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or other, you know, the cap of in- the helmet of invisibility from Greek myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, which points to this whole issue about the status of the Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. Is it a European fairy tale or is it um, really this archaeology of translation or are they mutually exclusive? Well, it's not, it's not originally European. I mean, even mm-hmm. if the even if Galan wrote Aladdin, which is unlikely, this, he had this... Mm-hmm. I mean, he wrote a version of it down, that there's this uh, storyteller who lived mm-hmm. in Paris who was a Christian Arab from Lebanon, Hannah Diab, and he uh, was the informant for several of these so-called orphan tales. So, and actually, Paolo Horta has written a book about this theme, mm-hmm. called, a very interesting um, book, a very lively book, called Marvelous Thieves. But um, it's, it's absolutely an Arabic, it's a, a work of Arabic literature, mm-hmm. um, first and foremost. It's just that it had so much, you know, that it coursed through cultures, particularly Europe, but then further afield, like here. And it, um, you know, it's, it's inseparable now from world literature. Mm-hmm. And world literature is flourishing because we have world media. We have cinema, we have uh, computer digital technologies, and this means that there are now, there's a far greater interest in literatures that, mm-hmm. in translation. I mean, because we are living in a fluid, translatable world, um, in spite of barriers constantly being invoked and, and threatened. Mm-hmm. And the whole, where it's, you know, the bloodstream is now, uh, the world circulation is quite vigorous, which is a, is a marvelous thing from the point of view of inspiration. Uh, having said it's an Arabic work of literature, it has all kinds of traces from earlier literature in it. So it's got a lot of Persian. The, the Persian romances are the sort of structure of the Peri Banu figure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, She's mm-hmm. a sort of... And Peri is a Farsi for fairy. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, she's a... She's a per, and Shahrazad is a Persian word. So there's a lot of Persian, but we don't have a, any kind of Persian manuscript. Um, so it was put together mysteriously, we don't know how or by whom, mm-hmm. um, in Arabic. Yeah, which points to somehow the contemporary resonance of, of this film and the way we can see it and how we can understand it as this um, sort of moment in time 
in which uh, these stories are blended uh, towards these kinds of effects of the era when it was made in 1926 Mm -hmm. or from 1923 until 1926 with a group of people. So Mm -hmm. in addition to Lottie Reininger, uh, her husband, Karl Koch, uh, as well as uh, a number of well-known people like Bertolt Bartosz, Walter Ruttmann, among others, were directly involved with the making of the film. And it, it, there's a kind of notion of technique of the era, as well as an aesthetics of the era that it points to, of the, the Weimar period. And it's interesting to think about it from that perspective, because uh, Weimar was also a crossroads of that period. Yes, and actually you can see, when you see it on this large screen, you can see the way there's a juxtaposition of avant-garde mm-hmm. abstraction um, in those backgrounds, which are probably mm-hmm. Bartosz, I think, mm-hmm. coming. Mm-hmm. And so there's colored backgrounds, which are absolutely... And some of the blobs, I mean, the rather strange genie of the lamp mm-hmm. is a figure out of sort of symbolism, uh, sim- sim- symbolist painting, rather than out of Lottie Reiniger's mm-hmm. um, domestic filigree. Her, her kind of scissor embroidery. Mm-hmm. That's a different aesthetic from the aesthetic, of, but it actually melds very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole multi, multi-planar approach mm-hmm. to um, the layers that we see on screen mm-hmm. is really interesting. And it, it also points to the fact that there was some division of labor that was going yes, on yes. in terms mm-hmm. of the techniques that they were using. Yes. So the animation stand uh, might be a part of that. Mm. Well, I mean, we have to remember that that, um, this is uh, 11 years before Snow White, which was Mm -hmm. the next major feature film, animated feature film, um, and that Disney was extremely aware of these people. He invited one or two of them to Hollywood, Mm -hmm. and they came, Rutman came and worked on Fantasia. Mm -hmm. But um, Disney was, you know, very alert to, to these techniques, they're extremely innovatory. Mm-hmm. Although we should say probably that they're innovatory on the basis of a tradition of family entertainment, to do with peep shows mm-hmm. and uh, c- cutouts and projections and magic lanterns. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a development out of, of a kind of uh, sometimes public entertainment on a small scale. Seaside piers would have magic lanterns. Mm-hmm. But the use of the coloured backdrops and, of course, this magnification of these tiny, they would have been very small. Her, her table, you know, the trick table that she used to make, which was a bit like a sewing machine because it had a treadle and a wheel, and the, the, um, that table was only about this big. So these figures would have been, you know... You can see some of the... You can see her making, um, making her figures. She, she gives a lesson in making them on one of the extras on the, on the DVD. Mm-hmm. I mean, They're all pinned that, together, uh-huh. and you can see all these wonderful mm-hmm. joints in the fingers. You know, the finger would be in diff- four different sections, all pinned and moved all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in seeing some of that, um, there were films that were made of how they were describing the film and how it was made among the other films that she continued to make afterwards in Britain, But one of the interesting aspects also is about the way the story relies on stereotypes. So Mm. in addition to the ornamentation, 
or as part of the ornamentation, there's the quality of the stereotype related to particular figures mm. like the African uh, magician, among others. And um, how have you understood the well, way it, it, it deploys it's, it's, all Of course, that? it has this, you know, this pre- prejudiced tone now. The African magician is the name of the character in the, book, in the story. So, mm-hmm. But here it requires a kind of diabolical shadow um, because of Germany and so forth. But he, and, and because he looks very Semitic with the... Mm-hmm. Or he looks, I should say, not, not necessarily Semitic. He looks like Nazi propaganda against the Jews. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is an, a, an, after, an after effect. Um, it's because what the imagery is drawing on, and very strongly in the demons of Wackwack, is Christian imagery of the devil, mm-hmm. especially German, actually. I mean, the, the, when, when, the, when the African magician turns himself into a sort of baggy monster with, with sort of goat-like shanks, mm-hmm. you know, there's mm-hmm. one point where he's got legs like that. That's absolutely classic. German representations, medieval representations of Beelzebub. Mm-hmm. So she's drawing on sort of local representations of evil, which themselves, of course, may be tinged with Christian anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. But she became very aware of this after the, after the Nazis. She had to flee the Nazis because they were t- she, they, she, she and her whole group of friends, were, if, even when they weren't Jewish, not all of them were Jewish, had to flee because they were completely intellectually, as most of Weimar was, out of tune with anything to do with the Nazi um, trend, what was happening. Um, and it all got much, much worse, of course. But so she, um, she left Germany. She closed her studio in 1933, mm-hmm. the year the Nazis came to power, and began a wandering life uh, with her husband. And then eventually was allowed into England in 1948, and she died in England in 1981. She was, a very, she, she was employed by a great figure in English film history, John Grierson at the BBC, to make children's films for British television. And she redrew her characters. So she made a new Aladdin, and she redrew, she redrew them so mm-hmm. that the magician has a little bobble nose. He looks much more like the fairy <laughs> godmother in Cinderella, uh, mm-hmm. in um, Disney Cinderella. Um, and various other redrawings that got rid of the racial overtones, the prejudiced overtones that um, had now become completely inherent in these in these stereotypes. But they were, and I think the Christian tradition probably was reprehensible as well. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. gained a kind of whole new impact and horror um, through the Nazi use of it. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me seeing it again this time mm. has to do with the use of color. Yes. So mm. of the era, tinting and toning mm. was one of the ways in which um, to code scenes in particular ways. Mm. So red um, or various shades of red might be an erotic scene mm. or yes. it might be fire. Yes. Um, blue um, mm. might be night. Mm. So there are all these different yes. ways in which yes. the story, there, there's a kind of prismatic relationship um, to location and uh, time. Yes, well, you maybe realize who I was trying to remember reminded me of, and that is Schoenberg. Mm-hmm. The Schoenberg's uh, mood portraits mm-hmm. and um, 
some of the artists like Kandinsky were interested in the color palette and how it was related to mood. I mean, you asked who was it, who was it aiming at, and mm-hmm. that's a mystery because it's not really a children's film. The, yeah, mater- the material is sort of fairy tale, and the, and the psychology is very simple, and the you know it's not it's not a sort of subtle interior mm-hmm. examination of character, but it's not quite suitable for children. I mean, it's mm-hmm. re- it's quite sort of strange for children, I think. And one of the reasons is that there is all this symbolic use of color and 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 mood and the music is not at mm-hmm. all accessible mm-hmm. to children I think I mean I yeah. don't want to be condescending to children but it doesn't have that appeal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean what's ironic is that many of her later films in Britain were geared towards children but in fact yes, the completely. earlier work mm. wasn't really oriented in no. that way well and... possibly it hadn't quite started the idea of children's cinema mm-hmm. I mean it wasn't you didn't yet have uh, those kinds of Yes, whereas when she worked in, in Britain after the war, uh, she was in the children's television slot mm-hmm. in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also interesting to consider, um, you know, of the period when she was working, the history of how she started to do this type of work. Uh, so on the one hand... Uh, you know, she was a teenager, was interested in acting, yes. um, found herself with Max Reinhardt, and uh, became connected up with the community, and that it seemed to evolve through these relationships yes. uh, with people that she met of that period. Yes, I mean, it was when she was just waiting to go into an audition that, um, I th- was it Paul Wegener, or was it Max Reinhardt? Uh, well, Max what, what? Reinhardt was... Uh, trying out actresses, yeah, yes. and I guess she was doing. She was this doing. She was making cut a, a cutout. Yeah, she was making some what, what, marvelous piece of lace, or some of these mm-hmm. extraordinary out, outlines she does. Um, and uh, he noticed it, and and he asked her to do the intertitles, the titles mm-hmm. for a film, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. through with her method. And um, but she's very sort of stylish. If you see a photograph of her, you know she has bobbed Weimar hair and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's um, no, it was it was um, and and then they were an amazing group because she did a lot of work for um, people like Paul Wegener who did the student to Prague, and that's interesting. That I mean, both Max Reinhardt was making fairy tale films. I mean, his Midsummer Night's Dream, if you've ever seen it, is just exquisite, mm-hmm. and was Angela Carter's favorite film after La Belle et la Bête, Cocteau. So those of you who like Angela Carter. Mm-hmm. She, she, um, the her, her, um, her last novel, *Wise Children*, is set in the actual making of Max Reinhardt's mm. *Midsummer Night's Dream*. The whole the scenes take place um, mm-hmm. in that um, on that set in Salzburg, in the castle in Salzburg. Um, so there's Max Reinhardt on the one hand, an extremely sophisticated impresario, who was interested also in this fairy tale world. And then um, the Paul Wegener was the person who made the films about losing your shadow um, to the devil. And the, the, those films used film as shadow. So there was a way in which you could show somebody becoming, mm-hmm. losing their soul, becoming transparent mm-hmm. um, on film, which you couldn't do very easily in the same way in the theatre. Mm-hmm. 
And this quality of shadow play and working with, with um, shadows as part of the spectacle itself, you've written a lot about that in terms of the phantasmagoria, but also this archaeology of techniques that have developed historically. Yes. Do you think they're consciously drawing on that, uh, or that she was aware of that oh, in, yes, in the th- way she was thinking about this technique that we call it animation, but I wonder, was it really just an adaptation of other kinds of uh, spectacles and effects of oh, the I think it was very, very much in the, in the consciousness, in public mm-hmm. consciousness, that film had an uncanny um, way of representing what had been described in literature for a long time as the mm-hmm. condition of the shades in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. You know, when... Um, Odysseus goes down to the underworld and he wants to embrace his mother. His arms go through her. Mm-hmm. And um, you can do that in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a kind of... They were very aware of that. But of course you can't put your arms through the shadows. You see, the sh- you see these shadows as solid. Mm-hmm. So, but what you, what, there's a difference, and the word has not entered vocabulary really, but um, there's a difference between shadow, which is cast by an object blocking the light, so a solid object blocks the light, and the kind of shadow that film is. Film is, film is shadow play, but it's light going through the, through the object. Mm-hmm. And someone, a philosopher, did um, develop a word for that, which is a filter. So when you see a stained glass window and the light falls on the ground, which is a shadow of the light, but it's transparent, mm-hmm. he, called that, he said that should be called a filter, not a shadow to distinguish the two states of mm-hmm. light, mm-hmm. one blocked and one passing through. And um, so this shadow play cinema uses both. I mean, she called, it, she called her films shadow films. It uses both. I mean, you, you're seeing both transparency and blocking the light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, what it often leads me to think about is um, with media in terms of how we conceptualize it, we're looking for these different kinds of origins. Um, and uh, we're, in a sense, create these different kinds of uh, archaeologies or histories of, of the medium. But what I think is interesting about a film like this is that because of the Arabian Nights as a tale of uh, origins that are, are still to be understood and discovered, it focuses more on narrative and the way in which we form narrative Mm -hmm. in our minds as we Mm -hmm. watch uh, Mm -hmm. or read uh, Mm -hmm. various kinds of stories. So one of the things that leads me to wonder about is um, the significance and the specificity of this history in relationship to the stories, that in some ways the stories might have more power in the way they recast our understanding in in this in this medium in this, mm-hmm. in this medium yes i mean it, it i was very struck by this lamp at the end mm-hmm. emitting light in this very very you know powerful way mm-hmm. and you know that you can animate that through this medium and i sort of mm-hmm. felt it was almost a kind of a hope and a promise mm-hmm. you know that this medium which is able to transmit Mm-hmm. and spread could be the, the lamp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it reminded me, of, there used to be, you know, at the beginning of 
certain studios would have a kind of light turning round or mm-hmm. a ray, or, and it sort of it was quite close to that, sort of paramount with the mountain and light coming off the mountain and um, other ones, Columbia, the torch. Now, these studios had this idea That's of illumination, yeah. um, and here we had it as if this might be a kind of instrument that could this this medium could be an analog instrument to the lamp and bring good. I mean, it's a sort of just a hope, but it had mm-hmm. powerful radiance in the, in the end of the film. Yeah, no, that, um, the scenes that focalize the characters around which they congregate, one of them is the lamp, the others are these fighting sequences, yes. mm-hmm. which are interesting because, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are examples where... Um, Either it's the the battle between the African magician and the witch, mm-hmm. and they transform into these different figures, yes. mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting to see because we start to see that there are these creatures that are, in a sense, transforming, and then we see the result of that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean it's it's. I mean, I said it wasn't a children's film, but I think there's an element of humor in quite a lot of scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when the snake, when he manages to throttle the snake and then hurls the tail up to the tree and then climbs up it, <laughs> this, is very, mm-hmm. this is, you know, very amusing. And there mm-hmm. were other, um, other sort of ingenious touches that are full of humor, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, we've been very serious so far, but it mm-hmm. is uh, very entertaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no, it's yes, true. Yes. I mean, but, and also these, the way it depicts sexuality, too, I thought was really interesting. Well, I squirmed a bit, I must say. Um, you know, I, I, it's not quite true to the spirit of the nights, where there are a lot of strong heroines. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think here you see how sort of Disney liked this. You know, he he liked a passive, sweet heroine. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. in the nights, mm, they're much more like the the witch of the flaming mountain. You know, they're powerful characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the story that Peri Banu is sort of very close to, uh, this, a story that I like very much, a very long one, which ha- is in hardly any anthologies, which is the story of Hassan of Basra, uh, she uh, escapes him. So he has to go through many trials uh, to bring her back. Um, and eventually he manages it, but it's much more of a task. She's much more of a character than Peri Banu. Yeah, I mean, and I wonder, I mean, we were talking earlier about um, whether there's a point of view specific to, uh, to Reiniger in the film. Do you think there's any address to this in terms of how the gendered relationships or the way in which uh, women are depicted or the female characters are depicted that has something to do with a well, point I think, of view that she's bringing to... Well, I think that the, 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 um, the men film. are very feminized, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's not... I, th- I mean, certainly Aladdin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is very... But that was a rather sad decision she made when she recut the figures, because her, her Aladdin here looks very East African, mm-hmm. which fits the um, geography, actually. Uh, she's not very accurate on that, lots of things, but... That, that fits the geography very well because um, the sailing scenes, the, the great, it's a great maritime culture, East Africa. So he looks very Somali or in his mm-hmm. profile to me. 
Um, but by the time she recut Aladdin mm-hmm, for her mm-hmm. children's film for the BBC in the 50s, she makes him a little snub nose, turned up nose with a little blonde quiff. Mm. So she's totally <laughs> abandoned the Aladdin mm-hmm. from Africa or Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So wh- why don't we open it up yes, to some yes. questions uh, or comments that any of you might have? Hi. <laughs> Well, it's been very interesting to follow along as you connect all these narrative and stylistic um, features to these, like, contextual influences of Reinecker's life as she was making the film. Um, And you mentioned that she changed the, like, wizard's duel um, so that the, like, good witch of the mountain killed the evil magician. But what I was wondering is why the hero didn't actually vanquish the antagonist. I thought that was really interesting that there's this like secondary good character that mm. kind of vanquished the evil in the end and then yeah. kind of comes back and is like, oh, like, you're, what'd you say? You're... You're my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're my friend. You're, you're, your foe is dead or something. Like, yeah, it's been oh, done. Yeah. <laughs> yes, no, that's a very good, it's a very good point, that... Um, the the, 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 the the heroes are not very... I mean, they're not entirely heroic. I mean, another scene mm-hmm. that's sort of quite, quite difficult for us is, of course, the scene where he steals her clothes and, um, and then pursues her when she's very vulnerable without her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you do know the book and the stories in the book, you do fill it up a bit more because her magic cloak is, is her identity. So she, she needs that. She needs her magic cloak. Um, she can't. It's not just her clothes. It's it's her it's her being as a fairy. So he, he's taken he's taken mm-hmm. stripped her of her identity, and that's and made her grounded her when she's really a fairy and she doesn't want to be in this world. So it's it's it's, it's a violence and um, and that um, so that they're, they're not very um, they're not entirely heroic, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I think when one discusses things like this, it's perhaps a danger to forget how entrancing it is. I mean, it has this sort of endless surprises of ingenuity and this exuberant decorativeness, extraordinary, the lattices and the lace and the the shoes, (laughs) which have been imitated by Alexander McQueen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure he did, you know. I'm sure, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, How about this? Was she familiar with Wayang? Because the profile Uh, cut out... Wayang Kulet, Indonesian shadow. Oh, yes, yes. Because that's what it most strongly reminds you of. Yes, yes. They they did know about it, yes. Mm. I mean, in fact, it's a tribute, probably. We should have mentioned that. Mm. And it's a tribute to... That kind of puppetry, the shadow puppetry with the beautiful cut-out holes, yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. Before, we, we had both made these PowerPoint <laughs> presentations yes. with images and slides, and yours had an example yes, of yes. Wine Coolit, um mm. shadow play as an inspiration. But we can't play it here. And, and I think it was, it was widely known of the period. So. Well, it was part of this tremendous desire to discover the world that you know began i mean it was 
partly to do with imperialism, but not, not entirely, and, the, and perhaps the intellectual and cultural expressions of it, though com- complicated in their intertwining with the imperial adventure, um, were also genuinely fueled by curiosity and admiration. It wasn't you know, just, just desire to conquer. It was, and, and I, don't, I don't know when the first reports on Bali and other places where you get shadow puppetry happened, actually, but by this stage, they, they were known. Mm-hmm. I was just uh, stricken by how she uh, showed that Arabs in general are good people mm-hmm. and very like heroic in the sense that we'll defend good things versus bad things, contrary to what we see in movies nowadays, where most Arabs are portrayed like terrorists or doing Mm. offensive things to other people. And also uh, the way that uh, the prince and his father and sister were dressed remind me very much of the Mughal Empire in Mm. India. Mm. They were very dressed like in the same style. Mm. It's quite quite detailedly researched. I mean, for example, in the harem scene, where you um, have, or in the scene with the girls on Wack Wack, though they are based, as I'm sure you noticed, on Josephine Baker, the dancing. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. Um, the actual scene, the furnishings are very carefully researched. That, that swing sofa was something that only existed in, in the Middle East. In fact, it still doesn't exist here. I mean, to have a swing, a swing mm-hmm. sofa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think the point also about the depiction of, um, uh, you know, characters or, or characters from the Middle East and the, the way in which it enters into this quality of a tale. Um, it's not really coded in the same way that uh, contemporary film is. No. So. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a liking for splendor. I mean, there is an association mm-hmm. which um, certainly Edward Said didn't like very much, and I mean, disapproved of, and which is that there's always luxury and hedonism and pleasure mm-hmm. um, in, in the sea. In sea. So in the, you know, the caliph's birthday, which is, as you quite rightly say, very mogul with elephants um, and um, tumblers and jugglers and things, that's, that's, it's all splendor. It's all you know, very mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of envy of... of um, I mean, Said would have seen this sort of envy of, of the wealth and the luxury sensuality of, of the culture. So he saw that as very stereotyped. Um, it's just a bit more complicated because there is admiration in it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was just curious, as far as I know, after this, she, um, she, she, she turned to more European fairy tales um, as material to base subsequent films on. She didn't make another another major film with oriental themes, I mean, other than redrawing certain characters. Um, why, why do you think that was the case? 
She, um, she had made some European fairy tales before this, actually. That's she right, made yeah. a Hans Christian Andersen flying trunk and one or two others. Um, I suspect that it was the BBC. She, she made all her other... I mean, I think they were mostly... There was one film she made of the Frog Prince in colour, mm-hmm. very beautiful, short. She never made another long film. They were all, they're all shorts that we have. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's she, the interesting... She wanted to make... Very interestingly enough, she wanted to make L'Enfant et les Sortilèges, The Child and the Spells. That's, she bought the rights. This is Colette's libretto to an opera by Ravel, which is about a very interesting connection with animation because what happens is that the little boy is very naughty mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, he tears his nursery, he breaks his toys and tears his fairy book and, um, and sets fire to his curtains and strangles his pet squirrel and behaves really badly. And then the, and in the opera, they all come to life again. The, the, te- the page that is torn in his fairy book, the fairy comes to life out of the book. And they all reproach him for his behavior. And it's, it's got a lot of Chinese music, just like this, um, I mean, Chinese, you know, pretense music um, with bells and <laughs> gongs and things, mm-hmm. just like this film. And, um, and, and at the end, he says, in fact, the translation was sometimes the magic word, because at the end, he breaks down in tears of repentance at what he's done and says, cries out, Maman, and then everything goes back to normal. So, this mad, this, so it's, it's, a, it's a piece much loved by psychiatrists, <laughs> because, as, because it's got this idea that if you... If you yield to your love, if you if you accept your love, you will you will mm-hmm. you will be healed, and the world will set itself to rights around you. That if you can you know love in a direct way, you will. So, maman is the key word. Well, Colette wrote this marvelous script, marvelous libretto, and Lottie Reiniger bought it, mm. bought the rights in when she was in England, but she never put together enough funds to make it, which is a tragedy. But of course it has this relationship to animation because everything comes to life. And thank you very much for joining us for the film and the discussion. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.